Take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to uh, go back and look at uh, some things that we covered last week. It's dealing with the topic of false teachers and the idea that false teachers will be judged. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by the lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, and despise authority. The sermon title today is Why Jesus Died and Rose. And you might wonder, well, why is the topic in our scripture about false teachers? Well, the reason is this. False teachers serve as an example. You see, the destiny of false teachers will be the destiny of many people alive today. And so we can learn some lessons from these false teachers and from their destiny, from the fate that is assigned to them because of their wickedness and their unbelief of heart. And we have something that I want to point out to you in these verses to help make sense of these, uh, these teachings. In verses uh, 3, the second part of verse 3, through verse 10, the first part of verse 10 specifically, we have a pretty unique structure. We have an if-then statement. And in verse 3, it talks about the, the, it introduces the idea that the judgment of false teachers is not idle, their destruction is not asleep. And then in verse 4, we have the word if. And if God did something in the past, then we can rest assured that God will do something in the future. And we have this if statement in verse 4 that really there's three if statements. One is if God judged the angels. That's verse 4. Secondly, if God judged the flood generation. That's verse 5. If God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. That's verse 6. And so if God judged the angels and the flood generation and Sodom and Gomorrah, the then statement in verse 9 is that God will not only judge the false teachers, but He'll rescue the righteous. And I want you to notice something else that when we look a little bit more closely at these verses here, that there's something that accompanies the judgment of God. 
and it is the mercy of God. You see, even though God judged the flood generation in verse 5, God rescued a man and his family from it in verse 5, and that's Noah and seven others, seven members of his family. Noah was a righteous man, a man who believed in the Lord. And when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued righteous Lot. We learn about that in verses 7 and 8. And so that's a very important thing to keep in mind, in the, in the mind of God, is that judgment, when judgment comes upon the earth, when judgment comes upon humanity, it is coupled with salvation for the righteous. And so if God judged some, the angels who were wicked, and the flood generation that was wicked, and Sodom and Gomorrah that was wicked. If God judged some, and he also rescued others, Noah and his family, and Lot and his family, then God will spare the righteous, in verse 9, and God will punish the ungodly. And so I want to tell you the conclusion of my sermon right now, which is sort of unusual, because uh, we just got started. Um, but it's like reading the last chapter of a, of a mystery book. It's like watching a movie and fast-forwarding to the very end of a, of a Hollywood thriller, and you're going to find out who did the deed. And then you might go back and watch the movie, and it can actually make more sense. And so I'm going to spoil the ending right here. And so if you have a, a seven-minute attention span, then and you can just tune out right after this. Or, or if um, you might say, well, today, you know, all I can handle is the milk of the Word. I don't know if I can handle the meat of the Word. Then uh, this is for you. Here is the end of the message. Jesus died and rose from the grave to spare believers and to punish unbelievers. Jesus died to give forgiveness and cleansing, to give a rescue to believers. But for those that are unbelieving, He will punish. And I want you to consider what it means actually to believe in Jesus and what unbelief in Jesus means. Because I think there's a lot of confusion today about what it means to believe in Jesus. There's a lot of confusion because sometimes uh, Christians feel like they have doubts about their salvation. They, they sin, they mess up, they wonder if they're really saved, they wonder if God loves them, they, they wonder if uh, somehow they've disappointed God to the point that God cannot forgive them. And we become muddled in our thinking if we're not careful to believe that uh, somehow uh, we've forfeited our salvation. Michael Heiser is a uh, theologian. I think he says this very well. He says the bottom line is that regardless of what profession we make or have made in terms of faith in Christ, we must believe in, in order to have eternal life. It's not about your profession, it's not about what you say, but it's about what you believe. He says, we are not eternally secure because of a prayer that we prayed at some point in our past if we do not now believe. 
There is no assurance of salvation without belief. There is no security in our hearts without belief. No one goes to heaven who does not believe the gospel. We must believe. And he says, I think at this point it is important to point out that a person can sin and very badly and still be believing. There are plenty of scriptural examples. He says unbelief should, not also, should also not be equated with doubt. And I want you to understand that and hear that very clearly. Unbelief is not to be equated with having doubts. There are scriptural examples there too. Thomas, the psalmist, or the prophet who asks where God is in times of trouble. He says, I would go further and also say that unbelief is also not the instance where a believer succumbs to fear or persecution. And he describes, I think, very clearly what unbelief is. Unbelief is a decision of the heart that one no longer believes the gospel, that one no longer wishes to follow Christ or Yahweh, the Lord. It is spiritual apostasy, choosing another God or no God at all. That is what unbelief is. It is saying to Jesus, no, I don't believe. He writes, I think in, it's noteworthy in light of this that in the long list of what cannot separate us from God's love in Romans chapter 8, unbelief does not appear. Think about what Paul said can separate us from the love of God. Neither height nor depth nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God. But he doesn't mention unbelief. Why? Because that can separate us from God's love. In fact, it keeps us from God's love shown to us in Christ. No sins of the flesh can remove us from the family of God. The only thing that keeps us from God's family is unbelief. Salvation is by grace through faith. That's God's part and our part. Both are essential, but grace is primary. Grace has the priority. Were the gospel not ex first extended to us, then there would be nothing to believe. And so today, a day that beyond any other day in the, in the calendar year that we uh, are uh, privileged to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the question for you today is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Do you believe that He's the Lord, the Messiah, the one who has come to save us from our sins? Do you believe that He's coming back? Do you believe that He will be, the, and He is right now, but one day will be revealed as the King of the world? And if you believe, then you are saved. But if in your heart you were to say to this idea, and you were to say to this understanding, and you were to say to Jesus Himself, No, I do not believe. If you were to say, I believe, Jesus, you were a good man, and nothing more than that. If, I, if, if you were to say, I believe that Jesus might have been a prophet of God, but nothing more than that. 
If you were to say, I believe that Jesus died and he's buried somewhere today and he did not rise from the grave. Or if you were to say, I choose to follow the God of Islam or I choose to follow uh, some other God, some other uh, religious system whereby your salvation would come through your good works and your devotion, then Scripture would say to you that you do not believe. What it means to believe in Jesus simply means that you understand who Jesus is, what He did, and according to the Scriptures, and you believe that message. Now, if you've never received Christ as the Messiah and the Savior, that's what you need to do. You need to believe. And, the, and you need to believe right now. It's the most important thing that you can do in your life because nothing else will keep you from eternal judgment. And nothing else will give you eternal peace. Nothing else will grant you the forgiveness of your sins, spiritual cleansing, the joy of God. Only belief in Jesus Christ can do that. And so even though it's the very middle of my sermon, you need to believe right now. You need to not hesitate. Settle that with the Lord right now. And so we're going to go back in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning into the second part of verse 3, and we're going to look more closely at what God is going to do with false teachers and those that follow that path. We understand that God stands ready to judge and to destroy false teachers. Verse 3 says about false teachers, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now why? Why would God stand ready to judge false teachers? Why would God stand ready to destroy them? It's simply because of this. False teachers want a lot of money. They're always driven by their greed, and they take advantage of those that sincerely are looking to God or looking for spiritual fulfillment, they take advantage of people like that by making up stories and telling those stories. Verse 3 actually begins, it says, in, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Jesus warned us about the false teachers that were to come. He says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Scripture reads, as he was standing on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him, and they came to him privately, and they asked him this question, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Listen to what Jesus said in a few selected verses throughout the next chapter, which is his response to them. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. There will be people who mislead those that would otherwise follow Christ. Verse 11, Jesus said in Matthew 24, Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Verses 23 through 26, Jesus said in Matthew 24, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show you, you great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Why does God stand ready to judge false teachers? Because false teachers 
take people that would otherwise believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and intentionally destroy their faith, mislead them in order to gain money from them, in order to use them for their own sensuality. And judgment is wide awake. Judgment is ready to punish these false teachers. Peter gives us some examples. In verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 2, the first example are sending angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That's the first example. Peter's referring back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What happened in these verses? Well, there were these beings that were called sons of God. And I believe they were bad angels. They were demons. And they came into the earth. And, and there's a lot of different interpretations to this. But Scripture most clearly teaches here in Second Peter and also in Jude that these angels came and married human women, married mortal women. And what did God do? He delivered them to imprisonment. It says in verse 4 that God cast them into hell. Now, the word hell is not the place we typically think of when we think of hell. It's not the word Gehenna, which is the end-time pit of fire, the final judgment that awaits unbelievers. But this word is the word Tartarus. It, it means the underworld. And so God took these sinning angels, these demons that had committed all types of perversity, and he imprisoned them. He cast them into the underworld for, their, for they wait for the day of final judgment. And so God has limited these demons' sphere of operation. They're held in captivity, in chains, if you will, for the day of judgment. And here's the lesson that Peter would have us know from uh, this understanding of what happened in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It's this, that God's judgment is certain. And if God judged sinning angels way back when, then certainly He will judge false teachers today who likewise cause great damage. Peter gives another example in verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, And if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, Here's the second example. It's the flood generation. What happened? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, very famous story, humankind grew exceedingly wicked. So what did God do? God flooded the earth to cleanse the earth of man's wickedness. And the flood eliminated every unbelieving man that was on the earth. And I believe that Peter's lesson for us today is simply this, that God's judgment is far-reaching. No false teacher, and no unbeliever for that matter, will escape the judgment of God. It will cover the entire earth. But you notice that God extended mercy to the righteous. God extended mercy to Noah and seven others. The third example from Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 2 is Sodom and Gomorrah. In verses 6 and 7, it says, And if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, 
having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. What happened? Well, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, they were filled with wicked and perverted men, some of whom even tried to sexually assault God's holy angels. So what did God do? God thoroughly destroyed those cities. And the lesson that Peter would have us understand is that God's judgment is thorough. God will utterly and absolutely destroy these false teachers. But, again, God showed mercy to a believer, to Lot. Verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. When we think of Lot, if we read the story that we understand on Genesis, Lot, Lot sometimes comes across as a bad guy. Lot comes across as someone who, who just sort of got off by the skin of his teeth. But Peter says that Lot was, was a righteous man. He had his faults. Definitely had his faults. But Lot was a righteous man in the end. He believed the Lord in the end. And God showed mercy to righteous Lot. And I would say one thing that's very positive about Lot. Lot felt what many of us feel. Scripture says in verse 8 that his righteous soul was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Does it bother you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ when you see the wickedness of this world, the perversity of this world? Hopefully you have that same type of righteous indignation, that type of torment where you wonder when will God make all of this right? When will God take care of all of this? Because this certainly cannot be pleasing to him. Lot sensed that in his own heart. And God showed mercy to righteous Lot. Two big lessons from this passage. Number one, God knows how to preserve the godly in their trials. Look at verse 9. It says, Then if all these things happened, if God judged the angels, if God judged unrighteous people during Noah's day, if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 9 says, Then, then the Lord knows how to, righteous, how to rescue the godly from temptation. The word temptation is literally the singular word trial. This verse is not technically saying that God knows how to rescue the righteous from temptations, although that's true. But that's not what this verse is saying. It says that God knows how to rescue the righteous from the trial. What trial? The trial are those external situations that can be difficult and can lead us to sin. Being surrounded by ungodliness, there's not a way to keep yourself totally unaffected by it. Your soul might be tormented like righteous Lot's soul. Your hands might become dirty as you have to go out and live in this world. And you're influenced by the things of this world. There are external circumstances that are difficult. 
These circumstances can lead us even to sin. But specifically, Peter is telling Christians that God will rescue us from false teachers if we seek Him. The danger is that following false teachers can lead us toward a path of spiritual apostasy. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, in that incredible parable of, of the soils, He said, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. And they believe for a while, and in the time of temptation, fall away. Someone is able to come along and preach a message that is not the message of the gospel, point people to someone that is other than Jesus Christ, and these people, because they have no root in themselves, although they seem to be believers, they run off and they, like lemmings, follow this other path. Our prayer should be, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation is not always the sins of the flesh. Sometimes the temptation, the trial, are those external factors that can bombard our hearts and our souls and eventually lead us into sin. God has made a promise to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God knows how to preserve the godly, the righteous, the believing in their day of trial. The second lesson that Peter teaches us is that God knows how to keep the unrighteous for the future day of judgment. Verse 9 says that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. The verse here says that God keeps the unbelieving for righteous for punishment later, for judgment later. The angels, the flood generation, Sodom and Gomorrah, were these people judged immediately when they sinned? The answer is no. God allowed these people to continue on for a time in their sin. So don't look at the wickedness of this world and wonder why, if God's judgment will, ne- will ever come. God's judgment will come in God's perfect timing. And don't believe that you can get away with not believing the Lord. I've run into way too many people who say, No, I'm not ready to believe in Jesus yet. No, I'm going to wait till I'm sick and old. I'm going to wait till I'm on my deathbed, then I'll believe in Jesus. What a foolish, foolish thing to do. Don't believe that you can get away with not believing the Lord. If you don't believe, the Scripture would have you know that God is keeping you for judgment later. God's giving you time. But if you don't believe, 
You're simply being preserved for the fires of hell later. Why? Why does God keep unbelievers for judgment later? I mean, why doesn't He just go ahead and judge them all right now? The answer is to give them a chance to repent. Give them a chance to believe today. There's two reasons in verse 10 why judgment is fitting. Verse 10 says, Especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. That's reason one. And number two, who despise authority. You see, false teachers undoubtedly engage in all types of sexual sin. And when sexual sin is engaged in, one of the effects that that has on the human heart is it causes people to reject the idea of judgment. People are just having too much fun. They're having too many other thoughts than have to be worried and bothered with the idea that, that God would judge them. Perverse people live for sexual pleasure without any thought of answering to God for it. And so God keeps them, holds them, has corralled them up in their sin until the day of judgment. The second reason that judgment is especially fitting is because of the idea of authority. False teachers despise authority. False teachers despise authority. Be careful when you go to a church and the pastor there does not want to submit to any type of authority where he thinks that he's the top dog and he has no reason to ever submit to any other kind of authority. Be careful about that because that is not a godly mindset. False teachers despise authority. False teachers are insubordinate. False teachers are rebellious. And if false teachers refuse to submit to any type of human authority, to have any type of accountability for their actions and their behavior and their words, then they will certainly refuse to submit to the authority of Christ. And so judgment is especially fitting. You see, Jesus died on the cross, and Jesus rose from the grave for two reasons. To give mercy to, to, give mercy to believers and to give judgment to those that do not believe. There's only two paths of life you can follow. You either follow the path of false teachers and refuse to believe, and that path leads to judgment. Or you follow the path of Christ. The path of Christ leads you to God's mercy. And to follow the path of Christ, it simply means that you submit yourself to Him. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. The choice is yours.